This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. What if, instead of getting weighed down by oppression and racism, you could move through that chaos using spirituality, a sense of justice and love, and an idea of what you're working towards? Well, Reverend Otis Moss III makes the case for this in his new book, Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times. He is the senior pastor at Trinity United Church of Christ on Chicago's South Side, and he joins us in studio now. Good to meet you, finally. It is a pleasure to meet you, Sasha. Why did you want to write this book? Well, I realized that several years ago there was a spiritual itch that people were dealing with. They were trying to fill that itch or scratch that itch with social media, with clout chasing, with materialism, but they end up empty Mm. all over again. And merging these eternal values, love and justice together, along with compassion and reciprocity and dignity and grace are the types of values that we need to flourish internally, but also to transform this democracy. You build on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s teachings of the idea of a complete life having three sides, the personal, the communal, the spiritual. Flesh that out for us. And Tell us why all are necessary. Well, Dr. King brilliantly talked about the fact that in order to build a complete life, that there is a personal dimension of internal development that that you need to work through. And then there is community commitment. But then there's also the spiritual. Spiritual meaning that we are all interconnected. But there's also something that is wondrous, that is mysterious, that is within us, the literal imprint of God upon each human being. And when you bring those three things together, it not only transforms you internally, it demands that you create a society and a community where all people can flourish. Mm. Let's stick with Dr. King for a moment. Uh, He called the movement that he led an effort to struggle for the soul of the country. Um, Describe that framework for us, Reverend, and how it fits into the current struggles and the current divisiveness that we're seeing and violence as a city Mm. and country. Mm. Well, I think Dr. King is drawing heavily from uh, Howard Thurman uh, along with the the black spiritual tradition, this idea that America, to quote W.E.B. Du Bois, is yet to be the United States of America. It's, it's being born. It's not born. We're not going back to make America great. We're trying to make America. And so Dr. King is raising this question that those who've been deeply marginalized, that have been seen as invisible, are the ones who are going to expand the democracy and literally be the midwives for this country to become what it is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. We're not there. We have not yet made it to that moment. And in his last speech, when he says, I've been to the mountaintop, he's saying that we are not that yet there yet, but I've seen the possibilities if we hold on to these values. You talk about um, striving for justice yes. in this book. So I want to be clear. What's justice mean to you? Well, we, in the book, I talk about the idea that love and justice have to be merged together. Uh, love without justice is just sentimentality. Justice without love becomes legalism or brutality. It's the idea of human beings being able to flourish, not just retribution, but the idea of how do we create a society where everybody is able to function at their highest level. So love, justice cannot exist without love is what you're saying. Absolutely. Now, in our society, we want it to exist without love and you get retribution. But when love is added to it, then you talk about redeeming, restoration. How do we create the kind of world where all of our children can flourish? Yeah. You also write about um, 
the way that those in power, how they use chaos to breed cynicism and despair to sort of push people to withdraw and then to go silent uh, as a result. How have you seen, give examples of how you've seen this chaos show up? Well, the the chaos shows up consistently in the terms of the way that we do policing. Uh, My wife Mm -hmm. said it this way. She said that, uh, Monica says that one community is protected, another community is policed. And the system of policing really comes out of the the entire system of slave catching. How do you control uh, people who are considered to be property who are now free? And we've continued with this particular system that creates chaos in one community, Mm -hmm. uh, but is so-called protection in the other. You talk about the system not being broken, but that it is working by breaking people. Absolutely. That's what the system is designed to do, is to break people, to break their hearts, to break their spirits so that they will not strive for transformation. And we need to rethink the way that we talk about this idea, not public safety. We need to talk about public health. Mm. What does a healthy community look like? Do you call someone with a gun to come and deal with a mental health issue or should we call a social worker? We have to think through the idea of health. And so one community gets health and protection Another community gets over-policing. I'm going to ask you that same question. What does a healthy community look like to you? A healthy community looks like where children are able to flourish and elders feel safe, where a teenager can uh, frolic and make these kinds of typical teenager things that they do (laughs) as teenagers in the street and not be killed for it and be seen as children. The vision that we have for wealthy communities is very different than the vision that we have for communities that have been marginalized. We have to see our children as the greatest gift. And those children who have not yet been born in the future, Mm -hmm. as, as in the African tradition, we're building a future for those who are yet to be. And that's what a flourishing community means. It means that a young person can, can play ball and at the same time find a place to, to do the arts mm-hmm. where an elder can walk down the street and, and share and hold court, uh, whether it is at uh, playing checkers and chess yeah. or even if they're you know, at the barber shop. That's a flourishing community where you can see images of yourself that are beautiful, that are affirming that are dignified. You're just reminding me of simpler times when I, I mean, my biggest worry was getting home before the streetlights came on. Absolutely. My mom told me the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) So back to what I alluded to when I introduced our our conversation, Reverend, how can we use that chaos that you were just talking about and move through it so that we don't go silent? Mm. Well, I try to lift up in the book the idea that every human being, we're going to encounter chaos. The scientific aspect, you talk about the law of entropy, that things just go to disorganization. But even in scientific laws, that there, uh, there are particular laws that we can recognize. I use the example of a sailor. Every sailor knows that there's chaos, <laughs> that, that if you are going to get on the sea, you're, you, can, you cannot control the waves, you cannot control the wind, but you can build a boat that is balanced with a rudder, uh, that is balanced in such a way that it has uh, a mast and can catch the wind. And if you catch the wind appropriately, though you can't go direct, you have to tack left and right uh, in order to get to your direction. 
And if we know that there is chaos, we have to build the appropriate boat internally and as a society. Mm -hmm. And what does that boat look like? It's a boat in reference to the values that we have to build. And I talk about love. I talk about justice. I talk Mm -hmm. about compassion. I talk about grace. I talk about dignity. I talk about reciprocity are the values that we need. And those values will allow us to handle the very difficult sea of the chaos of the proclivities of our peculiar human aspect of living, which many times we lean into what is destructive. Mm. And those values keep us balanced and leaning in the other direction. You talk about the Black Lives Matter movement. Yes. And how it's done that really effectively. Extremely. So the, the Black Lives Matter movement, along with the freedom movement, both of them were building these wonderful ships that were able to handle the chaos. They recognized what was going on, and now they're building a balance ship. This balance ship is able to catch the wind and use the techniques of a hashtag, organizing people. And so they were putting up the sail to say, Black Lives Matter, an absolutely obvious thing. But when you're dealing in a country that sips from the Confederate wine, you have to state the obvious, and the obvious becomes revolutionary. Those three words have caused so much division. Absolutely. Who would have thought? Well, America has always been dealing with that. The idea that black lives don't matter, but then someone will then say, no, no, you need to say all lives matter. Well, the reason I'm saying black lives matter is because all lives don't matter, and because you're saying all lives matter. You're now saying that black lives don't matter because right. you don't want to hear my voice. Right. We're not hearing each this. other. No, no, not at all. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We are talking with the Reverend Otis Moss III about his new book called Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times. So I want to get to perhaps my favorite chapter in the book um, where we're talking about anger. I know that that doesn't sound good, but I, I love how it's written. I, I love the stories that you tell. Um, but but let's get into it. We talk about anger, revenge killings as well, yes. right? Um, you write about superheroes, actually, how they restrain their power. I thought that was interesting. And you, you also connect it with uh, Jesus doing the mm-hmm. same. Then you apply it to the way that your church united around this mother and, and some friends who lost a loved one named Joseph mm-hmm. or Jojo to gun violence. You aren't necessarily saying, or this was my takeaway, don't be angry. Um, you're Again, you're just talking about redirecting it, right? So Correct. let's get into that. Uh, talk more about it and describe how your congregation supported Joseph's mm. family. Well, I appreciate you bringing up that uh, chapter. A lot of people have connected with that chapter. Something about how you wrote it. I don't know. People yeah. really um, uh, mention that particular chapter. It hits chapter. home. It, it really does, because yeah. we, we're just trying to be as honest as possible. Instead of these platitudes of like, don't be angry. No, of course, I'm going to be angry and there's going to be be rage. And I want to honor the Graves family, specifically Latonda Graves, who allowed me to share her story as a result of the loss of her son, who was a beloved member of our congregation and who was who was murdered a few blocks from our church. And our young people were deeply angry. Uh, they wanted to take the anger, and they wanted to to respond. But thankfully, we had a group of of young men uh, who work with our our young boys and the teenagers. It was a rites of passage program, and they sat down with them talking about how do you redirect your rage? Yeah, the pain that you feel. Are you willing to inflict inflict that pain on someone else? So, what can we do in this moment? 
Uh, we did a march. They they raised twelve thousand dollars on Kickstarter themselves, the yeah. teens, wow. uh, to find out information in reference to Joseph's killer. Uh, one of the other things that was really interesting is then they decided that they were going to have their own uh, vigil outside, and we knew that this was going to be dangerous because with social media, someone would say, "Oh, I know who the killer was," and someone would want to take things into their own hands. So we had to walk them through these ideas of restorative justice, give them space to be able to offer their anger and their rage, and then raise the question, what kind of community do you want? Mm. Raise the question, when you see Latanda weeping, do you want another mother to weep in the same way? Tell us about that pain that you're feeling. Now tell us about the kind of community that you want. What can we do collectively to reach that goal? And that's that's a hard conversation that yeah, you have to have. It is very tough. Um, I would love for you to read a portion from that chapter, Redirecting Your Rage. I think you've got with you the ending of the chapter. Yes. What is it about these black people? Why is it after all we have been through, we are still mostly restraining our rage, still demanding that the Constitution of the United States live up to its promises? Black spirituality has been demonstrating to America over and over again, the faith that it should have, the deep sacred commitment and practice to redirect our rage and harness our power, whatever our faith. After all this disregard, we keep bringing something to the table that could save America from itself. Wow. How do you see this saving America from itself? America has been living a lie. The lie that uh, it was born in 1776, maybe civically, but the truth is that its soul and its economic structure was built in 1619. The, the lie that there is stolen land that we occupy and built upon stolen labor. And if we face that truth and become truth tellers, then we can construct a society that is yet to be. Nobody wants to be in a marriage where your spouse is lying the entire time. And in this marriage, we've got to go into some major therapy as a nation and deal with the lies and the transgressions mm. so that we can then build the kind of nation that we all desire, that every single person in this country desires. We essentially want the same thing, but no one has given them a path to reach it. I am glad that in this book you walked us through some of your mother's teachings about dealing with your anger. This is when you were a child. That's You're right, laughing because right, right. you know exactly what I'm getting to. <laughs> um, because at the time, those teachings didn't work on you. You right. were still my friend, getting into fights. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you Absolutely. Still, Absolutely. You're still beating people up. <laughs> That's right. Um, I think a lot of people can relate to that, though, that, that resistance. Why was it important to include those early lessons? Well, my, my mother is such a wise woman. I'm so glad that she is, is living. She just turned 88, by oh, the way. If she's awesome. listening, Mom, happy birthday. Hi, Mom. We love you. Um, but she stated to me when I you know, got into a fight with, with one of my friends, she said, never give someone that much power over your spirit. The, the individual who goaded you into the fight, they're the ones with the power. 
She also said something I didn't put in the book also. She said, also, Otis, know that no one can ever misquote silence. So if you don't want to be misquoted, sometimes you need to keep your mouth don't shut. Don't say anything. <laughs> yes. And so having that wisdom to know that, that the elders around us, they've already experienced some things. Uh, my, my parents were raised in the South. Uh, they experienced Jim Crow, but they were a part of the freedom movement. They met in the freedom movement, and they believed deeply that it's your responsibility to change the community, not for yourself, but for those who are yet to be born. That's your job. That's all you have to do. And when you leave this planet, you should leave it in such a way that you can say, during my time, in my space, I made this place a little better. If you could share some advice on how to face our fears with love and dance in the darkness, what would that be? I'm thinking of the person listening to us right now who is dealing with mounting challenges. Life maybe just seems unbearable right now. What's the first step? The first step is kind of raising some questions within. What are you afraid of? What is the worst thing that can happen? And knowing, as, as one person stated about Frederick Douglass, that you have the force of being, that there is something in you that can survive even in these moments where you think it is absolutely destructive and, and painful. Uh, knowing that you are still gifted even after, even after all that happens. That's what I'm so fascinated yeah. by, sports and things of that nature, that Steph Curry, who is the greatest, the greatest shooter, in the history of the NBA, he always misses more than he makes. And his father told him, Steph, you got to embrace the miss. The moment you learn how to embrace the miss is the moment that you will become a great shooter. Mm-hmm. We've got to learn how to embrace those moments, I those that. moments that, that, are, that we consider to be destructive, and we can move through them and survive. In these last 30 seconds, Reverend, leave us your pitch. Why this book now? Well, I believe that our country needs to learn how to dance in this darkness. As my daughter taught me when she was dancing in the dark one night and I realized that the darkness was around her but not in her, we as a nation must learn how to take hold of this dance. And we, the dance is not just for ourselves, but it's for our children and our children's children to learn how to dance with joy, with justice, with love, with dignity, with reciprocity, with grace, and with action and a little humor. That's the Reverend Otis Moss III, senior pastor at Trinity United Church of Christ. His book, Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times, is out now. Thank you, Reverend. Thank you.